0: give. Thanks for listening, and God bless.
1: Our passage today comes from Matthew 22:34 34 through 46. Listen for what God is saying to you. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commitment in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord, your God, with all your heart with all your being and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest amendment, commitment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and all the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, at the prestigious were gathering, Jesus called them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? David's son, they replied. He said, then how is it that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord, When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? Nobody was able to answer him, and from that day forth, nobody dared to ask him anything. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of the scripture.
0: As we lean into the scripture today, what it has to say, let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together on days like these, days that for some are sweet celebrations of love and and family, and for others um, are complicated days that that hold um, the ups and downs of what life has to offer us or doesn't have to offer us. And so even in the midst of all of this, we ask that your spirit would be present within us. Clear away the clutter of our minds that we might hear you clearly, and that we might be people of courage to rise up and live into being those people that you have created and called us to be. We pray all of this with gratitude and in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a colleague about the way that we do faith here at Urban Village Church. And at one point he asked me if people are growing spiritually. And the question was fair and totally appropriate, but it did make me pause. It's not that I don't think people are growing spiritually, but rather the way that it takes shape is different from what most folks might have been conditioned to define as spiritual growth. When I was in more evangelical spaces, spiritual growth was pretty strictly defined as reading scripture, regular prayer, and time spent in worship. And it's not like those things don't matter at UVC, but it's, it's just that, well, it's not the whole story. There's something else I've been seeing happening within people over the years, And maybe you've seen it, too, if you've been around. If folks stick around, especially among those who grew up in traditions where they were taught, this is the way, it's the only way, and no questions about it. For folks like that, I see them come to UBC with a lot of suspicion. Because that's just not how we approach faith. I can see the value of it. When I first became a Christian, actually, I had no idea of where to begin or how to live this new life. And so having a set of rules was pretty helpful. And it made my emotionally confusing household and life have a sense of kind of which way is up. Rules can be important and helpful. Red lights and green lights tell us when to stop and go. Seatbelts save lives. Hitting reply all bans you from all group emails. <laughs> <laughs> rules can be helpful for all things, for, for many things, including spiritual growth. But following the rules is not the same as growing spiritually. Did you hear that? I'll say it again in a different way. Rules can help increase spiritual growth, but following the rules does not guarantee that you are growing spiritually. Rules are a a kind of vehicle to the destination of spiritual growth. They are not the destination itself. And it's this slim line of difference, the difference between uncritically following rules and actively engaging your faith. It's in this difference where we see Jesus come up against the leaders of his faith again and again throughout his ministry. We see it in this morning's passage. Here, Jesus has been taking turns, kind of sparring with both the Sadducees and Pharisees about all kinds of things. And before I go further, I want to take a minute to explain something about the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were the rule enforcers. And it, it wasn't that they were just a bunch of sticks in the mud, right? They saw how the Roman colonizing system manipulated people, cultures, and religions to serve their ends. They saw the way that the Roman Empire co opted people's spirituality and identities. To serve their ends. So the Pharisees are vigilant about protecting their communities. Does that make sense? They were deeply committed, rigorously educated, and fiercely loyal to the history and practice of the Hebrew tradition. They are keepers of the establishment. Now, the author of Matthew is pretty ruthless actually when they talk about the Pharisees. Like, so when this lawyer comes to test Jesus, it's pretty clear in the Greek that these guys the Pharisees and Jesus are no longer playing the dozens, right? They're looking to draw blood. And you see this when, at the top of the passage, the Pharisees call in this expert in the law. And you miss it in the translation, of course. But the particular form of this word test is only used in Matthew when they're talking about the Pharisees and the devil. And I think this is especially interesting because Matthew's gospel is specifically aimed towards early Christian uh, Jewish Christians. So You know, I don't know, I guess you can really go after your own people that way, right? But I think it's an important detail to pay attention to because if you hop over to the Gospel of Mark, you'll see this exact same exchange go down in a really different way. Mark says, uh, One of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. And so he came over and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? The same interaction told in a completely different light. In this version, in Mark's version, the legal expert isn't looking to test Jesus, isn't trying to trap Jesus. He's impressed by by the knowledge that Jesus is dropping, and so he's kind of curious. Now, you compare that to the Matthew passage, right, where the Pharisees are, are shown as plotting together, threatened and suspicious. And then when Jesus drops this knowledge in Mark, the lawyer is delighted to have encountered a different angle on the same topic. He takes this new idea or this different idea that Jesus presents and then he builds on it. He says, well said, teacher. You have truthfully said that God is one and there is no other beside him. And Jesus' response to him is equally delighted. He says, you aren't far from the kingdom of God. It's a really kind of wonderful and life-giving exchange of ideas where there isn't someone who wins, and everyone else looks like a schmuck, right? Instead, the conversation is kind of treated like an opportunity to lean in and grow, to expand your understanding. But in Matthew, there is no response. It kind of just ends after Jesus gives his answer. And so in Matthew, Jesus goes on and poses another Question. It's a tricky one that gets them showing the ways that they're kind of locked into their theological echo chambers. Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus asks, and they say, David, of course. To them, maybe it feels sort of laughably obvious, right? But then Jesus comes back and per usual has receipts, right? But if David is the father, then why, in Psalm 110, does he call the Christ Lord? Is the Christ Lord or is the Christ David's son? And it's like a good comeback, okay? And you can almost see Jesus like, you got served, right? <laughs> he, and he's like ready for them to come back. But then what actually happens, instead of um, being like the lawyer in Mark, instead of saying like, whoa, that's really crazy. I never thought about that. That's so cool. Um, instead of being surprised and delighted, instead of engaging him to understand more, they say nothing. And the scripture goes on to say, nobody was able to answer him. And from that day forward, nobody dared to ask him anything. And it's this last part, right? They just, like, picked up their toys and walked away because they couldn't win. What if winning wasn't the goal, right? What if the goal is greater understanding, deeper engagement with the tradition that they love, that they had completely dedicated their lives to protecting? They were stumped, and instead of walking away with wonder at this kind of new way of understanding things, they left with resentment, anger, maybe even revenge in their hearts. Maybe they were a little scared. Because when you have dedicated your whole life to something, when something you love takes a different shape than what you knew it to be, I'll be the first to admit, it can be scary. Do you have experiences like that in your life, where you're confronted with something that you thought you knew was totally true and sure, and then suddenly it's different? It's a little scary, right? Now, these two versions, Mark's version and Matthew's version, in many ways are both sides, actually, of the same coin when it comes to the head-centered folks on the Enneagram. And if you weren't here in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Enneagram as a, as a, as a kind of spirit, a tool for spiritual growth. Now, these folks in the head center, um, the observer, the questioner, and the adventurer, these are people who, at the end of the day, want to feel secure. And security looks like knowledge. And knowledge feels like control. Their control tower is the mind, and they have a deep sense of order and duty. When they're in wellness, new information is an opportunity for growth and expanded imagination. But like I said last week, the very thing that they, about the Enneagram is that the, the thing that is your gift can end up becoming your stumbling block if we don't do our work. Now, when they're stressed out, new or conflicting information becomes a threat for head-centered people. Their deepest concerns are around security and survival. And at first that might seem a little dramatic, right? But if you even think about it in terms of our passage today, we have the Pharisees who are deeply concerned with the security and survival of their tradition, of their status as the most knowledgeable interpreters of the law, the keepers of the right way of doing life as a Hebrew. Security and survival are about how can I stay in control? How can I never feel fear or pain or anxiety? And you can't blame them for that, right? So you try to make sure you understand everything, and this keeps you from feeling threatened, and it keeps you from feeling insecure. Now, for observers, that looks like wanting to know and understand everything so they can be self-sufficient and avoid looking foolish. And Underneath it all, they want to be seen as competent, and so they have this basic fear of kind of being seen as being useless, helpless, or incapable. In times of anxiety and stress, these feelings can drive them to become pretty harsh. Intellectually arrogant, stingy, distant, critical. And for questioners, number six, their, their driving fear is about security and approval. They want to, to feel secure and supported. And when they have that, they can be people of great courage of loyalty and warmth and compassion. But when they're in times of stress, these same people can become hyper-vigilant, controlling and paranoid and defensive. The adventurers, on the other hand, just want to enjoy life, right? They can be fun-loving, spontaneous, imaginative, charming and curious. They want to plan enjoyable activities. They want to contribute to the world. And and perhaps most of all, they want to avoid any experiences of suffering and pain. They just want to feel good. And so when they're under stress, all these great attributes fall to their shadow sides. They become impulsive, rebellious, unfocused, narcissistic, and self-destructive. Listen, the Enneagram doesn't leave anyone looking very good, okay? (laughs) But it is when we keep our eyes open wide enough to really see ourselves. If we see the cracks in who we are, those are the exact same spaces where God's goodness can do powerful work. And that's why it's important to pay attention. These Pharisees, I believe they love their tradition, but the love they have for their tradition and their fear of not being right, of being insecure, got all mixed up and stood in the way of the very thing that their tradition pointed them toward. Jesus put it to them, love God, love your neighbor. That's it. Everything goes from there. But their concerns for survival and security, it all got in the way of loving their God and their neighbor. That fear, that protection of the system. It blinded them to the ways that they were actually undermining the greatest commandments. And that all led them to become agents of great evil and the perpetrators of a great tragedy, condemning an innocent man to death by state-sanctioned violence. And so now I will take the liberty, I will use the privilege of this pulpit, such as it is, in this moment to talk about the great evil yet again in the form of state-sanctioned violence unfolding in our midst. A great tragedy for which, again, agents of law and order, of loyalty to a system without thought or consciousness, blindly act from unfettered fear and under the guise of security. And because today is Father's Day, I'll talk about fathers, because, but this is also about mothers, right? Because there are over 2,000 children, at least, whose fathers have been rendered distraught, dismayed, and horrified by a system that has applied a cold logic to warm bodies. We all know what is unfolding on our borders. Maybe you've seen the chain link fenced holding cells in which children as young as nursing babies have been separated from their parents, corralled into, under the guise of law and order. Let Jesus tell you something about law and order in our passage today. When we put law and order over loving God and our neighbor, when we have failed to recognize the fullness of another's dignity, when we have so disconnected ourselves that we label a human illegal so that we don't see a person, but instead we see an animal to be tagged and impounded like a wrongly parked car. When we find ourselves doing this, we have severely drunk several tracks over from love of God and love of neighbor. When we see these things, the dehumanization of entire swaths of people, many of whom are fleeing another kind of horror, when we see these things, we best not forget the slaveholder's manual that described in great and careful detail how to turn a human into chattel. It may have been digitized for a modern era, but the devil doesn't have to get that creative with the tools he uses. And yes, I said the devil. And when I say the devil, I'm talking about the personification of evil, unified in one direction, not a red man with a pointed tail. The devil is doing some mighty fine work through these fearful keepers of the law and order, people who have lost themselves by his whispers of terror and anxiety, who have so completely fooled themselves into thinking that they are on the right side of law. But of course, Dr. King reminded us that an unjust law is no law at all. And so... Let this be a lesson for us, right? This is how far things can go when we do not seriously engage the work that it takes to confront our shadow sides. We pretend these sides of us don't exist or that they don't have power. They will lead us if we don't pay attention to become so disfigured that we can no longer be able to recognize ourselves. Watch them and understand that these people believe that they are doing the right thing. They quote the Apostle Paul to justify their kidnapping and pat themselves on the back as they head into Bible study. Wafts of sulfuric acid trailing them into the sanctuary. It is more than a misinterpretation. It is a willful misconstruction of Scripture and a blasphemy in the highest order. And so we must speak out, if only to state loudly and clearly what would seem almost comical if it wasn't staring us in the face at this moment in our modern context. We don't have to do this. This mess, this evil is a horror of our complete design. Remember, love God, love your neighbor? That's the basis on which the law rests. We can do better. We can be more creative and compassionate. We can be more just. But first, we need to stop being so scared. Because here's the thing for all of us, and especially the head centered people. Leaning into the mystery of God, opening our hearts and minds to the vast possibilities of who God is and how God works, it is actually a doorway into incredible freedom. And contrary to what it might feel like initially, it is the path to unending security. Security and belonging, security and love, safety in grace. Now, for those folks who come from more restrictive traditions, coming to UVC can be kind of scary. People become outright angry with me, believe me, because we don't tell you what to do or think. What we try to do is give you tools and frameworks for doing your own thinking. And this can be scary because it's not always clear when you're right or you're wrong. It's not always clear if you're in or you're out, if that's the way you've been taught. You might be afraid you'll lose your salvation. Or you'll be out of favor with God, or you'll fall away, right? Let me tell you something. God ain't that fragile. And God's love is not so easily lost. Our God is the God of the good shepherd who left the 99 for the one. Who set a feast for the son that squandered his inheritance and said, Welcome home. Who gets cursed in the face by a mentally unwell and responds with healing and restoration, okay? God is not that fragile. God is not afraid of our questions or our doubts, and so neither should we. God desires an honest, authentic, and intelligent relationship with you. And if you lean into that, if you'll, you'll begin to find yourself experiencing a deeper kind of growth. You'll grow in the internal capacity to grapple with the gray areas of faith, a willingness to sit with the things that you just can't know. You'll find yourself turning to wonder, When you're confronted with a new idea or concept in faith, instead of reflexively feeling superior or suspicious or even outright rejecting new ideas and thoughts, you'll find that you're engaging a kind of faithful curiosity that leads to self-examination. I wonder why this bothers me so much. This. This is the faith work of our head-oriented people. It's a place where you don't have to work so hard you don't have to work so hard to defend your intellect. Where you don't, where what you know or how right you are, it doesn't define how valuable you are. Your mind is a true gift, but no matter how powerful or feeble it is, it doesn't have the final safe, uh, say on how safe or secure that you are. God is in charge of that. And God says that you're in. You are in. Take a deep breath right now. that. That's what grace feels like. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you give us the courage to lean into the pain of this world and what that kind of raises up within us, the kinds of questions, the fears, the doubts. In the midst of all of that, all of who we are, all that we know and all that we don't know, help us to be confident of one thing, If anything, and that's your grace and your love, you're welcome. Help us to be agents of that welcome in the face of a fearful world and an anxious society that this world might know your security and your grace in a deeper way. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.